The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, if you have your Bible, great, look at it in front of you. If you don't, the words will be back here on the screen with me. And this is what the Holy Spirit tells us uh, under the inspiration, uh, under the pen of somebody that we're not sure who it is. When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines summoned the priests and the diviners and pleaded, what should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. And they replied, if you send the ark of Israel's God away, do not send it without an offering. Send back a guilt offering to him and you will be healed. Then the reason his hand hasn't been removed from you will be revealed. And they asked, well, what guilt offering should we send back to him? And they answered, five gold tumors and five gold mice, corresponding to the number of Philistine rulers, since there was one plague for both you and your rulers. Make images of your tumors. Boy, that'd be a sight, wouldn't it? Ooh. And of your mice that are destroying the land. Give glory to Israel's God, and perhaps he will stop oppressing you, your gods, and your land. Why harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs? When he afflicted them, didn't they send Israel away and Israel left? Now then, prepare one new cart and two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, and put the gold objects that you're sending him as a guilt offering in a box besides the ark. Send it off and let it go its way. Then watch if it goes up the road to its homeland toward Beth Shemesh. It is the Lord who has made this terrible trouble for us. However, if it doesn't, we will know that it was not his hand that punished us. It was just something that happened to us by chance. The men did this. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, and confined their calves to the pen. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart, along with the box containing the gold mice and the images of their tumors. The cows went straight up the road to Beth Shemesh. They stayed on the one highway, lowing as they went. They never strayed to the right or to the left, and the Philistine rulers walked behind them to the territory of Beth Shemesh. The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they were overjoyed to see it. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there near a large rock. The people of the city chopped up the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the ark of the Lord along with the box containing the gold objects and placed them on a large rock. That day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. When the five Philistine rulers observed this, they returned to Ekron that same day. As a guilt offering to the Lord, the Philistines had sent back one golden tumor for each city, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The number of gold mice also corresponded to the number of Philistine cities, the five rulers, the fortified cities, and the outlying villages. The large rock on which the Ark of the Lord was placed is still in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh today. God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the Ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The number mourned, uh, the people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who is able to stand in the presence of the, of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the Ark go from here? 
And they sent messengers to the residents of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and get it. So the people of Kiriath-Jerim came for the ark of the Lord and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill. They consecrated his son Eleazar to take care of it. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been to Kiriath-Jerim. The whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you are worthy to be praised. And so we ask that you would have your blessing on the preaching of your word today, that we would leave changed and see you for who you are. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, we've all had that experience before. Uh, looking forward to a, a purchase of something that you've eyed for for so long and then you finally bring it home or maybe you get it in the mail because you had ordered it online and, and you open it up and you, you realize, man, this is not what I thought it would be. It, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't do the purpose that it's supposed to do. And so what do we do? We, we return it, right? Uh, there was one time about a year or two ago that Julie got a package that obviously none of the contents of it inside of it were hers. And so, uh, you know, there were, I believe that there were a couple dresses on the opposite spectrums of sizes, and it certainly wasn't her, uh, her style. And so calling the customer service representatives, they were absolutely beside themselves on what to do with these items. It was somebody else's, it wasn't in their system, and it wasn't in her order. So they originally said, well, why don't you keep it? Well, we couldn't get rid of them. And when we figured that out, we went and just went to Costco and just gave it to the customer service representative who had no idea what to do with it either. And in our passage this morning, we come to the conclusion of a narrative in which the Philistines, who are the arch enemy of Israel, uh, they received a package that they thought they wanted, but it ended up really becoming a, a nightmare for them. It wasn't purchased on Amazon, and it wasn't delivered by UPS. It was a spoil of war taken from the Israelites when the Philistines defeated them at, uh, at Ebenezer. And it was no mere just package. It was the Ark of the God of Israel. It was the object in which they believed that God lived. This is where his presence was to be. And the Israelites brought it out to battle, thinking that this would be their magic lucky charm that would get them victory, and it ended up killing 30,000 soldiers, uh, two of the high priest's sons, and the ark itself had been captured, the heart of the nation, and in their minds, God was gone. And last week, we learned about how the ark was brought to the city of Ashdod, and it was placed in the temple next to their chief god, uh, named Dagon, as sort of this trophy. And what they didn't know, and what they quickly found out, was that God was no one's trophy. That he is sovereign and that he is relentless to ensure that he is known as the one true and living God. That there are no other gods beside him. And instead of getting the prize package that they were happy with, they got the order that they didn't know what they were to do with. And they couldn't figure out what to do with this. Instead of happiness and national pride, it brought dismemberment and death to their chief god, Dagon. And one that brought health issues to their people that rivaled the bubonic plague. And just as Julie could not get rid of this package that uh, mistakenly came our way, so the Philistines couldn't come up with a solution to what to do with this rectangular terrorist to the Philistine cities. 
They were beginning to recognize that this God, whom they thought they had subdued, had only made himself be on the back of enemy lines and now was going to fight on that side. And that he was going to see, and we are going to see in our text today, that God must be recognized as gracious and sovereign and faithful and holy and that he is to be fully trusted and he's not to be given back. He is to be embraced. So let's look at those, those four brief things today. First is that we ought to trust God because God is gracious. We ought to trust God because he is gracious. Seven months prior to this incident, the Philistines claimed this as a religious victory. But in those seven months, the Philistines had completely changed their, their mindset. They have gone from seeing God as a trophy to then fearing him as a threat that they can't contend with. And when they finally recognize the, the, the power and the glory of this particular God, they don't want anything to do with his holiness. Because the political leaders couldn't figure out what to do, surprising as that is, that political leaders can't figure out what to do, they turn to the religious leaders. In verse 2, it says, The Philistines summoned the priests and the diviners and pleaded, what should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. And it's here now that we get a, a glimpse of the grace of God. The Philistines may not have been aware of what the book of Leviticus says about atoning for sins, uh, but every culture in the ancient Near East understood the concept of appeasing the gods with sacrifices and offerings. Verse 3 says, they replied, if you send the ark of Israel's God away, do not send it without an offering. Send it back, send back a guilt offering to him and you'll be healed. Then the reason his hand hasn't been removed from you will be revealed. Is this a perfect offering? Not by any means. They're doing what they know and they're hoping for the best. And the Philistines then respond by asking the central question that every guilty conscience needs to ask in response to God. In verse 4, they asked, what guilt offering should we send back to him? You see, friends, we shouldn't just assume that God is going to sweep everything under the rug. That he would just forget about our sin and our rebellion. Forgiveness and freedom are uh, against him are never without some sort of payment. Instead of assuming or just hoping that God would let it go or look away, we have to ask the same question that the crowd asked Peter at Pentecost. Brothers, what must we do to be saved? And so the priests of, of Philistia suggest that the offering fit the need. Now, I don't know how, but somehow they associated uh, mice with this, uh, these boils and these, uh, these sort of the bubonic plague type thing that was going on here in these tumors. And so they responded in verse six, uh, four, verses 4 through 6. We'll give them five gold tumors and five mice corresponding to the number of Philistine rulers. Since there's one plague for both you and your rulers, make images of your tumors and your mice that are destroying the land. 
So they knew that they couldn't just stand there. They had to do something. That something being sending these golden tumors and sending these golden mice out with, uh, with their God as a gift. But what they go on to suggest is something very biblical. Actions mean nothing without the heart. Actions mean nothing without the heart. Look what happens here when uh, he says, Give glory to Israel's God, and perhaps he will stop oppressing your gods and your land. So do you want God to relent and look favorably toward you? It's not strictly transactional. It's a matter of the heart. The purpose of everyone, the reason why you have breath, and the reason that you have life today is to give glory to God. And so they remind them that uh, there are consequences of leaving their heart out of this by bringing up what happened to the Egyptians hundreds of years prior to this when they refused to let uh, God's people go out of Egypt. Verse 6, why harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs when he afflicted them? Didn't they send Israel away and Israel left? So they recognize that it is better to honor the Lord than to suffer the fate of these infamous plagues. Now we might not see this on the surface here, but this text shows us the immense grace and mercy that is in our God. If God is revealing himself to his enemies, the Philistines, and those Philistines had done terrible things to, to Israel. There is hope that he is not averse to those of us who are also far off. God will give us that hope. And that hope comes through a sacrificial offering. And the Philistine priests here, they weren't wrong. God demanded a sacrifice for atonement. But there is no amount of gold in the world that could ever be enough to satisfy what God needs to atone for our sin. There aren't enough animals in the world to satisfy God in this way. There's only one thing that could finally bring us peace and reconciliation with God, and that is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. On the cross, Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, took our sins upon himself when he was hanging there on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. We who are modern-day Philistines, we who have rebelled against him, have taken all of that upon himself. And we're free. And 1 Peter chapter 1 puts it this way. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So there's amazing grace found in tragic stories like this. And wherever you're at, whatever life 
thrown at you and whatever is grieving your heart today, God is gracious and he has provided a way to get you right with him and to turn your life around. And his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the just for the unjust. Trust in him because he is a gracious God. And second, we must trust in God because he is sovereign. We must trust in him because he is sovereign. Now, politically speaking, we hear this quite a bit uh, with different nations. It's to designate a country or a territory that acts independently within its own uh, borders and boundaries, uh, and that's free from interference from other countries. They, they run things the way that they want to run things. We like that sort of idea. In fact, the way that our church runs is sort of in a sovereign way. We are part of a denomination, but yet we have absolute control over what happens within our church. Our denomination can't tell us who to hire. They can't tell us how to run our service. We are free and independent. We are sovereign in that sort of way. Now, theological sovereignty is a bit different. Theolo uh, theologian Wayne Grudem, he defines uh, the sovereignty of God like this, that it is God's exercise of power over all of his creation. So, whereas a sovereign nation can, uh, can run their country in the way that they see fit, they can still be bullied. They can still be invaded. They can still be attacked. God's sovereignty is such a way that nothing can thwart his plan. Whatever God has ordained to happen can and will happen, and any attempts to thwart that plan, he will use it in his ultimate plan to bring about what he has chosen in his will. And God's sovereignty is a wonderfully uh, comforting doctrine, and it's shown here in verses 7 through 12. The people had just asked these religious leaders about how they should go about sending this ark back to the warehouse that it came from so that they can get a refund. In verses 7 through 9, they suggest this. Prepare one new cart and two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take the calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, and put the gold objects that you are sending him as a guilt offering in a box beside the ark. Send it off and let it go its way. Then watch. If it goes up the road to its homeland toward Beth Shemesh, it's the Lord who has made this terrible trouble for us. However, if it doesn't, we will know that, uh, what has, what, <laughs> that it was not his hand that has punished us. It was just something that happened to us by chance. So, this passage can be pretty uh, tricky to navigate if you're not familiar with the uh, ways or the instincts of a milking cow after it's had a baby like I had no clue of before I, I researched this passage. Apparently, cows with newborns are like fiercely protective of their calves. And they won't stay away from their calves for very long. They know what they need, and they want to be attentive to them. It's not easy to separate a mama from her calves. Uh, so when these religious leaders are uh, suggesting this, is not taking just one, but two milking cows away from their babies. 
And furthermore, they needed two cows that have never been yoked to each other. And what that means is that they, they, they would have put those wooden kind of stock things on the two cows, and then there would be a wooden beam between them, and they would drag something really heavy to carry the weight of something that, that humans couldn't. Well, it takes a lot of work and a lot of training in order to teach cattle how to do this sort of thing. And so here you are, you're talking about two milk cows that have to leave their babies and that have never been yoked before together. And we'll see. If they go back to Israel, then God's behind it. If the cows separate and, and really have a problem and want to get back to their, their babies... Well, then this is here is all just a coincidence. And for them to go solo and think that they're going to come back to Israel here, the priests are saying that we need nothing short of a miracle. And that's exactly what they get. A few fellows, they follow this cow to see, these cows to see where they would go. And sure enough, in verse 12, it tells us exactly what happened. The cows went straight up the road to Beth Shemesh. They stayed on that one highway, lowing as they went, never straying to the right or to the left. The Philistine rulers were walking behind them to the territory of Beth Shemesh. So this, friends, this is the sovereignty of God. That he has control even over nature. That these cows are going to the Israelites. And if we were to push the rewind button, then we would say that Israel didn't lose the battle in which the ark was captured. God made it happen and used the Philistines to do it. They had to learn that God cannot be manipulated or coerced. And the, and the Philistines had to understand that God is not some tribal deity or uh, attached to some uh, certain ge uh, geography, but that he was the God over all. And both Israel and, and, and uh, Philistine, uh, Philistine. <laughs> I can't talk today. Philistines. I want to say Philistia. And I almost said Palestine. Philistines, by the way, were, were um, ancient ancestors of Palestinians. Um, they both learn that God is who he is. They went from considering this box to be nothing but the ark of the God of Israel to verse 9 saying, we need to give glory to this God. This is who God is. He has orchestrated these circumstances for both the Philistines and the Israelites to show them who he is, how they need him, and how he alone should be worshipped. And God is using your circumstances for the exact same thing. It's for you to see who God is. Your great need for him. And there may be something going on in your life right now. Or in your heart. That you haven't seen it yet. But it's time to open up our eyes and wake up. God is using these events and he's using these circumstances so that you would see your need of him. That you would see your great need of Jesus Christ as your savior by which he can make your, you good again. In the long term, the Philistines didn't continue in this. It'd only take a couple chapters to see that. But don't let that be your story. Trust in God because he's sovereign. 
And third, we need to trust in God because he's faithful. Trust in God because he's faithful. So every one of us has a part in, our, in, in us that loves the idea of faithfulness. We love the idea of having a friend who will always be with us through thick and thin, that will never leave us or forsake us, that whatever baggage we bring into the friendship, they've got our back. And further, every one of us that have been married dreams of having a marriage that, that is in complete fidelity and that it's solid and it's insecure and there's faithfulness that is there. No one dreams of a marriage that's full of rejection and infidelity and no one dreams of having a friend in which you're stabbed in the back and constantly uh, sort of put through the mud with them. It is rooted in our nature, ultimately for us to delight in God who is faithful par excellence. Now imagine you're an Israelite in the year 1050 BC. The ark, the national religious symbol, the hope of your entire people group is gone. You're probably a little on the anxious side. But life has to go on. You still need to provide for your children. You still need to provide for your future. And so here these people are out there, and, and as you, you, you look out to the hills, all of a sudden you see two milking cows coming over the hill. That'd be a, little, a bit strange. And as they get a little bit closer, you can see they're, they're, they're towing something. And that, that looks like what the ark is described to me as. That might be the ark. And now in verse 13, it says that the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they were overjoyed to see it. Now, I'm not sure that there is language that is uh, fit enough to describe the beauty of what is happening here in this picture. These are a people that have been totally wounded. They've been wounded nationally and socially and morally and religiously and spiritually and in so many ways. Their hope was gone. There was nothing left for them. They're just going through the motions one day at a time. Maybe that's sort of like your life right now. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, hope shows up. The ark is back. And this is beautiful because it shows the Israelites that though their sin is great, the grace of God is greater than any of our sin. Though their rebellion was infinite, God did not give up on them. As the ark comes into view, it was embodying what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 103 when he said, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in uh, faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who Fear him. And I hope that in this story, you can see God's faithfulness to you as well. You may be right now walking in the complete opposite direction by which God wants you to go. Or maybe you even feel that God is done with you and that there is no more hope for you. Maybe the ark in your life has been captured and that's it. 
Lift up your eyes and see the faithfulness of the Lord. The fact that you are breathing means that he's not done with you yet. He has provided a salvation in Christ our Lord. And not only that salvation, but new life through the Holy Spirit. Look and see that God has been pursuing your heart this entire time in faithfulness. Don't put this off. Trust in him now. He is not only gracious, not only is he sovereign, but he is also faithful. And fourth and finally, we need to trust in God because he's holy. We can trust in God because he's holy. We can get really deep when we talk about the holiness of God, but let's keep it simple. God's holiness means that he has an absolute separation from anything that is wrong or morally ill. He is holy in the sense that he is, has absolute moral purity and he has a devotion to seeking his own honor. His holiness is something that's both exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. If we as sinful people were to encounter God in all of his holiness, we would be totally undone. The Israelites initially recognized this. Uh, the ark shows up at Beth Shemesh, uh, and they do the right thing initially. They call the professionals, the Levites, who are the priests. They've been taught how to deal with this ark. However, in their excitement, they forget about how to care for the, the, the holy things that God had, had asked them to. In verse 15, the Levites, they place this ark on, on a rock, and it ends up becoming sort of a spectacle as something would at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The people of Beth Shemesh, they, they kind of show up for a homecoming party. Verse 14, they take the yoke off the cows, they chop up all the wood, they, they sacrifice the cows right there. And that was a fatal mistake. They're common people. They're not supposed to offer up sacrifices like this. And according to Leviticus chapter 3, it's not supposed to be a cow. It is supposed to be a bull. So not only did they trivialize the, the ark and the sacrifice, but they also put the ark up as a display of art. And in doing so, the people got a little too curious and as they got closer and closer, looking at all the fine art detail, they decided to open it up and look inside. That is probably the biggest no-no that God had told them all the way up to this point. They're too chummy with God. Now look in verse 19. God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark. He struck down 70 persons the people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is, is faithful. But he is also not casual. The Israelites were not to touch the ark, let alone to look inside of it. And 70 people paid the price for it. Beth Shemesh, in their holy homecoming party here, now had... Uh, been reduced to the same fate as the Philistines, asking the question of the people of Philistia. In verse 12, people of Beth Shemesh asked, who was able to stand in the presence of the Lord? 
this holy God. To whom shall the ark go from here? Now, we can't show God reverence according to our own sentiments and perceived wisdom. We show reverence to God by obeying his commandments and trusting in him. And have, yet, have you yet noticed that every time the Philistines and now the Israelites get this sense that God is sort of being hard on them, their initial reaction is, we just need to get this God thing out of here so that we can get on with our life. How many of us have ever had that sentiment in our hearts? That maybe God is trying to tell us something through a circumstance and we think that if we can just get God off our back, maybe send him away, then life can go on as it was before. But friends, when we encounter God and his holiness, life can't go on the way it was anymore. You can't encounter God and not be changed. Don't push him away. Embrace him in his holiness. And so finally, they need a place to put this ark, somewhere that it's not going to cause tumors and it's not going to kill people. Really, what they needed to find was a place where people loved God and wanted to serve him and worship him rightly. And they find these people in a place called kiriath Jerim. It's an interesting place because it's not an Israelite town. It's a Gibeonite town. The Gibeonites were ones that sort of tricked their way into the community of Israel by deceiving Joshua a long time ago. But they've acclimated themselves to the, uh, the lifestyle of the Hebrew people. And in verse 7-1, the people come and they get the ark and it ends up with this guy named Abinadab. His son Eleazar, he ministers to it and oddly no one gets sick. Why? Because the people of Kiriath-Jerim respect God's holiness and trust in him in that. And it calls us to face a, maybe a harsh question. Do you recognize the holiness of God? Do you receive God's presence with joy and, and reverence and awe? You see, God's people are to see him, yes, as gracious and sovereign and faithful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. What great words, what greater words can we say about our God? But we must not forget that God is holy and doesn't conform to what our thoughts about him are. We must not make the mistake of falling into the cultural, cultural mores that God is common, that he's casual, tolerant, buddy-buddy. You know, we spent about a month trying to get rid of these items that were sent to us that we had no idea what to do with. It took us that long before we finally brought it back to the store to wash our hands clean of it. But you have something far more serious than Costco sending you the wrong package. You have the gracious, sovereign, faithful, and holy God. The question is, what are you going to do with him? Are you going to pass him off as the Philistines did and the people here in Beth Shemesh so you can get on with life? 
Or are you going to trust in him as he is? The gracious God. The faithful God. The true and living God. And will you embrace him who gives you everything by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord? Let's pray together.